And hello, you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5. Stefan, every single time I come in here, I think about doing the uh, Good Morning Vietnam intro, mm. but I don't, I don't want to blast anybody's head off because yeah. I can do that pretty loud. I think it's the mics. It is the mics. Well, maybe next time. Mm. Uh, without further ado, however, we have uh, a number of items to get to, so I want to get right to it. We'll skip my blabbing this week. <laughs> uh, first up, uh, we're welcoming back Angela Bischoff, who's the Outreach Director from the uh, Ontario Clean Air Alliance. She'll be joining us in just a second. She's live here in the studio uh, to give us uh, an update on the activities of the OCAA and uh, clean energy and nuclear issues in general, uh, specifically from the point of view of Ontario, but not restricted to it. Uh, and then we're going to be uh, the main uh, heat of today is that we have a wonderful interview with Mike Morris, who is the founder, one of the co-founders of the Sustainability CoLab, uh, which is also very interesting, but I don't want to tease that too much. We'll get to that right after uh, right after the music break, when we, uh, right before we introduce, uh, right before we, hello, test, I don't hear anything in my headphones, perhaps it's gone, do you? Uh, I, I just got us back. You yeah, got so us back. There we are. That, I don't know. Something's working now. All right. Well, then, sorry. Without further ado, assuming the mics are working. So we'll, we uh, have Angela up first. We'll be back to uh, talk about sustainability collab a little bit later in the show. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Dr. Sustainable, our, our dear Kevin Farmer, will be joining us at the very end of the program. So without further ado, I don't want to take any more of your time. Welcome to the Green Majority, Angela. Thank you, and great show, you guys. Stefan and Darren, thanks for your good work. Okay, so I want to give you an update on nukes in Ontario. Uh, since I've been here last, which was a couple of months ago, there's some really exciting uh, things that have happened very recently. I'm going to start from the bad to the good, by the way. So uh, early in September was the second hearing for the nuclear waste proposal proposed by OPG on or under Lake Huron, around Kincardine at the Bruce plant, they're, they're proposing to bury all of Ontario's low and intermediate level nuclear waste. Of course, it's not necessarily low and intermediate level. That's just what they call it. But a lot of these wastes will be buried there for millions of years. And a lot of us are concerned that they are modeling this proposal to bury our nuclear waste 2,000 feet below the surface, which essentially is below Lake Huron. A lot of us are concerned about that option, and we think there are a lot better options. And there was a hearing in September where many people came out, dozens of people came out and made presentations and tried to pick apart OPG's proposal, and they did so very well. But essentially what OPG is proposing is to bury forever in a dump, uh, our nuclear waste, w many of us feel that they actually want to open it up to high-level nuclear waste as well. But for now, they're just talking low and intermediate level. And they are modeling this proposal on the WIP project, Waste Isolation Pilot Project, that is in New Mexico. And lo and behold, in February, that nuclear waste dump, which has been bearing high-level nuclear waste for the last 15 years, that dump actually failed. And there was a fire and an explosion, and 20 workers were contaminated. And so OPG had to do a second hearing based on what had happened at WIP. And not only has WIP failed, but there are only two other similar dumps, nuclear waste dumps, that are, are, are bearing waste deep below the surface, and they're both in Germany, and they've both failed. So all three proposals 
or all three projects, similar to what OPG is proposing, have failed. So uh, we got to go at it again in September and and talk about all those options and why OPG is proposing the exact same thing, which has failed everywhere else. And uh, it was it was actually very gratifying because there is huge opposition around the Great Lakes to this proposal. And both from professionals as well as uh, senators in the U.S., municipalities all around Michigan and Illinois and Ontario that are passing resolutions opposing this proposal. So we are proposing what we think is a lot more reasonable, which is to keep the the waste above ground, uh, bunker it, keep it separate so that if one one pile explodes, it doesn't ignite the other piles and keep them above ground, retrievable, so that if in the future, the inevitable future, when they start to leak, we can actually retrieve it and move it somewhere else. So that's what the environmental community is proposing, and we think that's very reasonable. So that's that's my nuke waste update. Do you have any thoughts or comments, questions? I, I do, but I'll save it for the end. Go okay. ahead. Second thing, which is super inspiring, happy story to share... On September 21st, me and about five other, 500 other anti-nuclear uh, organizers around North America met in New York City for the big uh, climate change rally, which happened in New York City. There was 400,000 people at this climate change rally. There were five stages that were set up prior to the rally, the morning of the rally, and one of those five stages was an anti-nuclear stage. So we really uh, made our presence known within the climate community that nuclear power is not a climate solution, despite some of the rhetoric coming from some people who think that nuclear should be part of the solution. We made our presence known. We had 600 anti-nuclear flags, nuclear power no thanks flags that we ordered from Germany. They were all over that rally, but it was so fun to be part of this 400,000 strong, progressive, environmental, action-oriented group of people from all over the world, really, that were saying no to climate change, stop the, the madness, and it was super fun. I'm sure you heard about it and reported about it in your show in recent weeks, but uh, really good time. And lastly, uh, the Ontario Clean Air Alliance released a report this week, which I'm very happy to say is very simple. It's just one page. It so clearly outlines that there are solutions to rebuilding our nuclear reactors. As you know, because I've reported this in the past, Ontario has 18 working nuclear reactors. We're, we're the second most nuclearized nation on the planet or jurisdiction on the planet, second only to France. We get about 60% of our electricity from nuclear power. And all of our nuclear stations are old and need to be replaced. It's, it's actually a good time because we can come up with alternatives to replacing all those nuclear reactors. Instead of rebuilding them, we can replace them with green energy and move Ontario to a renewable energy future, which nations around the world are moving in that direction. But unfortunately, the, the Liberal government feels really hamstrung by the unions and, and by the status quo, which wants to maintain 
the the system that we have in place of these huge, expensive mega projects, and there are of course lots of industries that will benefit from this fifty billion dollar plus expenditure that the province is moving forward to spending to rebuild Darlington and rebuild Bruce the Bruce nuclear reactors. Fortunately, Pickering is on its way out, uh, but they want to rebuild Bruce and Darlington. So we've released this report. We've analyzed all the data, how much OPG wants to spend to rebuild Darlington. And it turns out they want to spend about, this is just their you know, their estimates, which we know are very much under-representing the true estimates, but they say it's going to cost about $0.09 cents a kilowatt hour, which is, you know, around $13 billion to, re- to rebuild Darlington. Those are public dollars. What, could we achieve the same amount of electricity production in more green manner and in a cheaper manner? And yes, our analysis shows that we could. For example, Quebec is the fourth largest water power producer in the world. I'm not saying it's the greenest form of electricity, but it is renewable. The dams are already in place. They don't have a market for that electricity. They're selling it right now at three cents a kilowatt hour. So three cents versus nine cents to rebuild Darlington. And the three cents, that's granted, that's on the spot market. If we were to negotiate a long-term deal to actually replace Darlington, what if we were to double that and give them six cents a kilowatt hour? Still, they would make a huge profit and we would avoid rebuilding Darlington and all the cost overruns that are inevitable, the nuclear waste that we have to isolate from the environment for millions of years, the mining affecting First Nations people and the environment, etc. So it's a win-win situation. We don't have to rebuild Darlington. We get clean water power. Then there's also conservation, which is even half that. We're looking at around three cents a kilowatt hour for conservation just to reduce our demand. That's the most common sense solution. Instead of building a nuclear station, which is producing um, 3,000 megawatts of electricity, let's save 3,000 megawatts of electricity at a fraction of the cost by investing in conservation and reducing our greenhouse gases in the process and creating many, many more jobs than are produced in the nuclear industry. So that's my story. We released this. People can find it online at thecleanairalliance.org. It's our recent infographic comparing. It also compares how much it costs for us to rebuild um, units one and two at Bruce Power, which is even more than what OPG proposes to rebuild Darlington. And it's got other other costs factored into there as well. So check it out, cleanairalliance.org. Blow your mind, look at the options, and then let Premier Wynne and your MPP know that you've read that. You see that there are many options to meeting our electricity needs. We don't have to rebuild our nuclear stations. That's not the only option, even though that's what they put forward in the news and in the media. That is, there are many options, and we need to go 100% renewable, and that's what the 400,000 people on the streets in New York were calling for, 100% renewable electricity, and that's where Ontario has the opportunity to move toward. So let your provincial politicians know. It's a provincial choice. It's not federal. It's not municipal, though they could play a part in lobbying the province, but it is strictly provincial government choice whether we invest in renewables or 
or in nuclear power. So let them know. Thanks. Awesome. Angela, I have, uh, we're running tight on time, so I, wanna, I just want to ask you one really quick uh, follow-up question, but uh, I'll have to ask you to be somewhat brief about your answer, if you okay. don't mind. But uh, a number of environment groups take an, a number of ranges of tactics when trying to put forward their uh, uh, their ask, if you will. Um, OCAA does have a track record of success, and I've also noticed that OCAA has a track record of not, and correct me if I'm wrong, but generally you don't sort of say we don't want something without offering a very specific alternative. And that's not something that every group does. I'd like to ask you about the role of providing the alternative with all the research for the thing that you want in addition to the thing that you don't want. Uh, how, how has that played a role in your track record? Well, I like to quote Jack Layton in that respect. He always talked about that it was never enough to build opposition. You had to propose. So proposition was important as opposition. So that is part of our strategy all along. When we actually won the coal phase out, it was the same thing. We proposed conservation and natural, very efficient burning natural gas, so combined heat and power, super efficient natural gas plants. That actually helped move Ontario off coal and onto natural gas. Now we're taking on the natural gas industry and saying we want to phase out natural gas by 2030 and as well as phase out nuclear by 2030. So that that's our present goal. But I appreciate there's always compromises and even with the water power imports from Quebec, that is a bit of a compromise. I would rather have 100% made in renewable green energy, made in, sorry, made in Ontario green energy. That's our goal. But in the meantime, there's so much pushback to green energy in Ontario, and there's no pushback to water power imports or even to conservation. Those are very politically pal- palatable options. So while we're compromising, it's still a good option, and we see the future being 100% made in Ontario renewable. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time and for coming down to the studio. Angela, again, Angela Bischoff, the Outreach Coordinator for the Ontario Clean Air Alliance. And uh, just uh, just give them the website if they want to follow up with more with you. Cleanairalliance.org. And I do have a weekly newsletter that I send out called No Nukes News that lists all the nuclear and green energy news of the week that I think is most important if anybody wants to be on it. Angela at cleanairalliance.org. Just send me an email. Or even if you have any questions or want to challenge what I've said today. Thanks. All right. Thank you so much, Angela. And we're going to go to our first music break here. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM or one of our wonderful community syndicates. We'll be right back.
And we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. Uh, a couple of quick reminders before we go to our second uh, interview. One of them is that the Fall Membership Drive. If you happen to be here in Toronto, we're listening to us in the uh, Ontario, Southern Ontario region, I guess, because we have a massive transmitter. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you, guys, by the way, for that, uh, which is going to allow us to continue to expand and improve. Uh, however, uh, we still need to operate uh, the station with our fancy new toys. Uh, even the most fancy battleship needs a crew, Stefan. Hmm. Uh, so we're going to – I don't know why I always go with war metaphor. Anyway. They're fun. says a lot about me, In I guess. In a not fun way. Yeah. <laughs> Fall Membership Drive coming up October 20th to 26th. I believe that puts us on the 24th. Fifth for our show, but I need to double check that. I don't have a calendar in front of me. But it's twenty fourth. Twenty fourth. Thanks, Stefan. Uh, so we'll be doing that. So stay tuned for that. If you're not listening in Toronto, then of course this is maybe a reminder that probably your local uh, campaign will likely be coming up at some point. And uh, hey, they need your support too. So uh, CIUT would love to get a donation to help operate the station. If you are not in the CIUT range, however, and you don't wish to cross boundaries, uh, then just you know be just see this as a reminder that uh, this stuff doesn't fuel it. Itself. And, uh, you know, as much as Stefan and I will never, believe me, will never ever run out of things to say about mm. the environment, uh, we may run out of, uh, you know, theoretically could run out of a place to have a microphone that broadcasts it for hundreds of kilometers, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so stay tuned for that coming up in a couple weeks. Without further ado, however, I want to get to our main feature this week, which is an interview with one of the founders of the Sustainability Collab, Mike Morris. Uh, Sustainability Collab is uh, a project that started with Sustainable Waterloo uh, and then now has expanded, has had tons of big institutional buy-in like uh, the Trillium Foundation uh, and a number of other large organizations that have really helped to amp this up. However, I'm going to let Mike himself introduce Sustainability Collab. Take it away. My name is Mike Morris. I'm the executive director of Sustainability Collab. Sustainability Collab is a nonprofit uh, that we started in, re- in response to interest from around the world in a program that started in Waterloo Region just about eight years ago or so. And uh, it was a small idea from a bunch of recent grads who thought, why aren't businesses uh, setting targets and measuring their environmental impact? Uh, we knew that business measures everything that matters. Uh, we knew that it was in businesses' best interest to reduce their environmental impact, and so we thought, why not uh, help them to, to make progress against that? And, uh, and so I've led Sustainable Water of the Region for the first uh, six years, um, and this, just now in the past year, we launched uh, Sustainability Collab in January of 2014, uh, and I have uh, led it since that time. My sense is that we're living in a time when so many systems are so obviously not working for so many of us. And so in the early days, we had no grand vision to be sharing this idea outside of Waterloo Region. But my sense is that when at this time of like unprecedented number of different crises converging at the same time, we're all looking for different ways of doing things that can tip these systems in a positive direction. And so today that means Sustainability Collab is supported by major family foundations and corporate sponsors. But, you know, less than eight years ago, um, the early days was really just, I guess I was graduating from Laurier and uh, was getting ready to finish with a double degree in business and computing and computer electronics which is a long-winded way to say that I was good at writing business plans and building robots. And uh, along the way, did my co-ops at various high-tech companies, but found that that wasn't really what inspired me. 
And I think the universities, of course, are the perfect place to be finding your passion and your sense of, of worldview. And for me, that was very much the case. Um, I guess the start of Sustainable Water of the Region started with my reading a book. Uh, so I read Ishmael by Daniel Quinn, which I highly recommend, uh, particularly for someone who is in the midst of sorting through um, uh, the, the kind of the ways that our uh, our species relates and doesn't relate to the natural environment. And what I really appreciate about it is that it had very much a Socratic method to it where it wasn't telling me I was wrong, but just helping me ask different questions. And it was, it was through that process that I was then led into uh, everything from Bill McKibben to Derek Jensen. And through that, then found myself with a prof on campus who was willing to take a chance on a student to do an independent study, and we got course credit for it, and that independent study led to another one and the dean allowing us to get more course credit uh, to write a business plan. And that business plan became Sustainable Waterloo Region. Literally, the, uh, the first piece of funding came in uh, over lunch before I wrote an economics midterm. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that was the last piece of funding for a few months after that. So very much, um, it was bred out of passion and an interest in taking my academic language that I had brought, I'd learned over the last four years, and taking that passion and saying, like, where can these two things meet? And realizing that this ecological uh, sense that I was developing um, needed the business community to be a part of it, and actually was going to benefit the business community by being a part of it, and knowing that businesses can be huge drivers of, uh, of massive change if given the right conditions. And why not create something that might give those conditions in water the region and bring together what's already there? Uh, so that's where it kind of started from. Why do you think the idea has been so successful? What has made Sustainability Collab really take off? So my sense is that getting buy-in for new ways to tip whatever system you're working on is by far the most critical place to start. That, uh, at least in our case, I can speak to in Waterloo Region, um, getting the funding was one part of it. And I, and I don't mean to diminish the amount of time and work and thinking and, and, and uh, conversations it took. In, in our case, it was in 2009, right after the recession. And it was only, like, it was 200000 was the total amount we needed to get started. And that was from a mix of corporate sponsors we called founding partners and, uh, and some uh, federal, uh, provincial, and local granting or organizations. But the money alone, like... Money alone builds empires. It doesn't build impact. And that's what we knew this was going to be about from the very start. If I was going to put my, and the, the team that I was working with, all volunteers, were all volunteers at the time, if you're going to put this much time into it, you want to be able to look back and say, yeah, this is the tangible change we saw. And it's kind of been fun since to see the secondary benefits that have, uh, have resulted from the Regional Carbon Initiative and Water the Region and now as we scale it. But to that earlier point, what we did by accident really was we, so this whole program is about getting businesses to set targets to reduce their carbon impact. So the idea was businesses would uh, get access to software and events and best practices from their peers and get recognition for the progress they make. And they'd set targets and get recognized for the progress that they make towards those now setting fees along the way, uh, or actually paying fees along the way. What we had to do, though, was actually set a target. So when I tell you today that Ernst & Young set a target to reduce their carbon impact, what does that really mean? Uh, what year are they comparing against, and um, and what year are they looking forward to? And so we actually had companies in Waterloo Region participate in a process where they voted on what those targets would actually be. So rather than 
the the group seeking the change say, here is the target, and here's why we think it's the right idea. Rather, we said, who wants to be a part of a process where you're going to tell us what the target's going to be? And so we invited out, uh, well, 50-some-odd people from across the business community, municipalities, nonprofits, um, uh, academia as well, without an agenda, simply with some recommendations of here's what we see, you know, that what might make some sense. You tell us. And they all had different interests, but ultimately, over the course of only about two months, they voted on a framework that within two years, uh, 20 of those 25 people, so like 80% of them, ended up joining the program. Specifically, what I mean by that is they were part of companies that were some of the first few that started paying money to be part of a program where they got support to set targets to reduce their carbon impact. When I look back and say, why did that happen? And we've, we've studied it a little, a little, little bit. Our sense is a big um, contributing factor was the fact that, they, that the businesses actually had a say in what it means to set a target, what baseline years are allowed, what we do with carbon offsets. And so now the more interesting challenge is now how do we share this same model with other communities across the country? And as we do that, how do we ensure that buy-in in each community is actually like uh, built into the way that this thing is shared? And so that's actually how we've set up Colab to operate, that rather than taking a franchise and saying, here's the cookie-cutter Waterloo Region answer, instead what, what, what we've done is said, here is the kind of minimum criteria that makes sure we're all playing the same game. So as long as each community organization we support is engaging businesses, they live and work in the communities in which they're going to support, they're charging fees of some kind to the business community, and the businesses are setting targets. As long as they're doing those things, they're going to create the rest for themselves, including the actual rules of what it means for a target to be set in their community. And so we've tried to do, and we're going to learn if this has been successful or not over the next five years as we see if this, if this model scales outside of Waterloo Region, is now we get a chance to say, let's make sure that each community has that buy-in. Because to our mind, and to some of the, the research we've done to date, that buy-in is absolutely critical for a community to really rally around a new systems-changing idea. Um, the second part is around results. And uh, absolutely, that's been critical to some of the early success that I can point back to Waterloo Region. And rather than just tell you some stories, and the stories are super important, but beyond the stories, I can also say that, uh, well, in total now, 65 businesses have set targets that amount to about 55,000 tons, which is about 12,000 cars off the road every year, and that 90% of those businesses renew their membership every year, and that those fees are actually financially self-sufficient. And that when the report comes out to get a sense of the progress the businesses made last year, over 400 people come out. And that represents every cross-section of the community because those people are looking to those businesses to say what results have been achieved. Without having an audit, without having regulation, with just helping businesses connect the dots and showing the results. So it's not just about logos on a website because we're all tired of that. We don't need more logos on websites. We need more demonstration of results that are actually in all of our best interest. And so certainly I think... Uh, that's been critical to the model in Waterloo Region, and as we're seeing it take place in Niagara Region, as we're coaching groups in Durham, Kingston, and Ottawa, um, that's actually one of the minimums. You have to actually be setting targets so you can report back on results. And Colab now, as a national entity, requires certain metrics to be reported from each, each community. So now we can talk about the results of multiple communities, each creating networks of businesses that are setting targets to reduce their carbon uh, Im impact.
So why are metrics specifically the key question for to get institutional buy-in? And on a larger scale, where does this fit into the overall climate strategy for Canada? So having metrics to report back on answers the question that everyone's going to ask eventually, and that is, why should I care? Why does this matter? And so for the average resident in Waterloo Region that's looking to get a sense of you know, where our business is at in terms of their sustainability strategies, my sense is it's a lot more difficult to ask that question and have one business tell you, I changed some light bulbs this past week, and other business tell you, that uh, maybe we retrofitted a particular building or we did something with our fleet. You can get a lot of different stories, but how does that actually help you give you a sense of, well, okay, and so what? What progress has been made? Likewise, for the businesses that participate, having a sense of metrics gives them a sense of, well, businesses, again, they, they measure everything that matters. And when something is measured, then you can actually start to see progress and value the progress on that particular metric, whatever is chosen. And so given it's a voluntary program, so we, we call them target-based sustainability programs for businesses. And so no community or no business must participate. There's no regulation around this yet. So the, the balance to strike is asking for enough information that it's actually something that means, that has some value to understand for any audience. So for example, greenhouse gas that if we can say, okay, here's the greenhouse gas output of any given business, that gives you a sense of, okay, that's the carbon footprint of business A versus business B, and here's the kind of total progress that this particular community's made towards reducing its carbon footprint, which is, is the most contributing factor to climate change, an issue that is of critical to importance to our whole species. So choosing the one metric that's simple to understand that has a, an important social or environmental impact while also making it easy for a business to add that to what they're already doing. So one of the classic questions was always from a business that's thinking about being a part of it is how much more work is this going to be for us to report on this new thing? Well, in the case of carbon, it's all the same things that they need to pay their bills for anyway, anyway right? You got your energy bills? Great, you have to report that so you can pay your bill. Well, now also just report the carbon impact of it. And so... Again, to address the question, it's all about using a metric to give some credibility. Because ultimately, in the narratives we're telling across various areas of however you want to define the environmental or sustainability movement, it becomes really difficult to get a sense of so what. And having at least some shared metrics gives us all an ability to say, okay, like that, I can, I can, I can understand that, and I can actually compare that and I can get a sense for what progress means when you're starting to talk to me about a particular metric. So I think asking questions about where we each fit into the broad change we need to you know, tip the system, um, it, makes, it brings me back to a question I heard just last week around uh, you know, what, uh, what is exciting about this time that we're living in. Taking the optimistic side of an often kind of negative question. And my sense is this is an exciting time to live and it's exciting for me to be a part of it because I get to live in a time when it's going to be required of us all collectively to literally reinvent so many pieces, so many core aspects and systems that bring together how the human species exists on this planet. 
So literally systems from our energy systems to our transportation. Like these are, these are massive structures that, that are, that are, that are, that are ingrained in our, our values for how we get around. They're ingrained in our, in our existing infrastructure in the cities we all live in. And I get to live at a time when it's becoming increasingly clear that the path we're on is not going to be one that's going to sustain uh, ourselves for the long-term future. And so when I think about like, what that means for me as an individual, it comes down to having the opportunity, having the privilege to be a part of some piece of the solution to those kind of confluent different crises. Um, and so for me, my hope is with the Colab network, with the Regional Carbon Initiative in Waterloo Region, that it starts to give a sense of hopefulness for different ways of doing things and contributes to the, you know, so many other particularly kind of community-led approaches to solving massive challenges like the climate crisis. Uh, for me, I remember, I often talk about you know, watching the Copenhagen debacle and feeling so powerless, uh, knowing that I had no uh, ability to really sway the outcome of that in any, in any way. Um, and I contrast that with, with my work in the last you know, eight years now. And, uh, well, hey, like, I get to actually be a part of seeing a social innovation work at the community level and then scale it up to now see that same solution begin to have traction in other communities and hopefully along the way has inspired others to think differently, uh, much like, you know, people like Paul Hawken have inspired me up until this point. Um, my sense is if you're going to talk about the massive change we need, it's that, like, relentless incremental steps we need to get us closer to that. And if I can look back on my, and I, and I do this often, I I'm, happen to be a very introspective person, so... I spend a lot of time thinking about, is this the most, I use the word leveraged, or the most impactful way for me to be part of the solution to the climate uh, crisis? And I can only feel good about, about the, the contribution that I've been a part of and uh, what I've helped spark in some communities across Ontario to start with. Um, and that personally feels, feels great to me, um, but also gives me so much more, like it's, it's so little in contrast to the size of the challenge we have in front of us. Um, and so for me, it also then is like the, the big gulp is making the connections to the larger movement that, that, that we're a part of as we all kind of awaken to a different way of doing things and realize that some of the individual or even collective things we're doing are just drops in the bucket. And how can we help those things amount to so much more at a pace that is going to need to be just uh, astronomical. Um, that's the kind of that's what also kind of pushes me. Uh, that's why I, I uh, made the decision to move from the local to the um, to the provincial level. Now um, there's amazing work continuing to be done in Waterloo Region. I'm so proud of the kind of spark that I helped uh, strike there. Um, and for me to get a chance to start to be a part of the solution at a larger scale is super exciting. 
And that was, of course, Mike Morris with Sustainability Collab, one of the founders. Uh, and I actually found out, Stefan, uh, that somebody at CSI was actually part of that project during its uh, early stages. Oh, really? Uh, as well. Yeah, I won't, uh, I won't out them in case mm. they wish they hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna take our, we're gonna go straight to our final music break here because I, I want to leave as much time for the final segment as possible. So I will simply say you're listening to the Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM, or possibly on one of our wonderful community partners across the country. We will be right back. For those of you who don't have the opportunity to come and watch us live in the studio, I'm going to have to give Kevin a chance to catch his breath because uh, Stefan's dancing was uh, was making him choke almost. <laughs> we know, Gal, uh, without further ado, we're going to go straight to Kevin Farmer, a.k.a. Dr. Sustainable. Take it away, Kevin. Uh, hi, everyone. Just checking my mic. It's always a bit wonky. Uh, uh, and yes, Stefan, Stefan's dancing is... is is a thing to behold. Oh, if you if you want to see images like that, for instance, I we first uh, we just started using Instagram, and I've uh, we Stefan and I just during the music break uh, decided that it would be only used for goofy pictures of us doing silly stuff. So <laughs> enjoy might, and might, follow us on Instagram if you want to see goofy pictures of Stefan dancing. That might almost be the only way to enjoy environmental news. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, so okay, I'm just going to play a clip. I've I've clipped this actually from a live stream of Power and Politics. I've been told I'm allowed to do this. It's 20 seconds. But that's where it's from, and if the CBC isn't a public resource, I don't, I don't, then I, I don't understand anything. <laughs> but, uh, but here's here's uh, here's here's uh, Stephen Harper. When our allies recognize and respond to a threat that would also harm us, we Canadians do not stand on the sidelines. We do our part. We should be under no illusion. If Canada wants to keep its voice in the world, and we should, since so many of our challenges are global. Being a free rider means you are not taken seriously. All right, so of course that was uh, St- Stephen Harper making the case for going to war against uh, ISIL. 
uh, in Iraq, I just found the, the, the points, his, his, uh, his moral imperatives, fascinating if you contrast them with, uh, with our policies on, on global warming. Um, uh, and, and, and so this, this notion that, uh, you know, it, it, with regards to global warming, so he talks about confronting a threat that our allies are confronting. We're not just the only nation to formally withdraw from the Kyoto Protocol. We, we have been acting as international saboteurs ever since, trying to scuttle any, any possibility of international accord where, wherever we can. And, uh, and, and when he talks about losing our voice on the world stage, you know, we've done that as well. Internationally, we're considered pariahs on the, uh, in the environmental community, uh, and it's certainly with regards to global warming. Um, and, and, and we have, we have lost our voice in the world. So I, I just, just think of, think of global warming and listen to that clip again. When our allies recognize and respond to a threat that would also harm us, we Canadians do not stand on the sidelines. We do our part. We should be under no illusion. If Canada wants to keep its voice in the world, and we should, since so many of our challenges are global, being a free rider means you are not taken seriously. <laughs> and that's why I would like to announce immediate and forthright action on climate change. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's, uh, it's, it's, almost, it, it's, it's almost hard to take seriously the, the, uh, you know, the sort of the cog- cognitive disconnect there is between you know, levels of urgency on various crises and this, this notion of, of, of uh, the moral imperative we have on some issues. And and not on not on others, uh, you know. In particular, uh, global warming. So anyway, this I'm going to use this. Uh, I, I think it's worth considering, and I'm just going to use this as a slightly clunky segue uh, into talking about something I've always wanted to talk about, and I've j- I just never have, uh, which is uh, something I, I like to think of as environmental peacekeeping. And uh, you know, uh, it's, 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 the notion of modern peacekeeping is actually credited to uh, uh, Lester Pearson. Uh, he was the 14th Prime Minister of Canada. And uh, I blogged about this once a long time ago, and, and I, I commented that, you know, at, at his time, uh, Canada would have been under the ballistic arc of a nuclear exchange between the former Soviet Union and the U.S. And, and, and Canada would have been, you know, be, between the two resulting nuclear wastelands after such an exchange. So I don't know, maybe Pearson had a unique perspective on the need to keep the peace. Uh, now, I don't know if that's how it was conceived, but however it was conceived, uh, you know, peacekeeping, it's a, it's consider, it, it, it is attributed to Canadian action, and it has been a hallmark throughout my life, and certainly during the last century. Uh, it was a hallmark of, of, of uh, Canadian international uh, action and, and policy. And without a doubt, the, the disproportionate influence and respect that Canada had on the world stage was, was due in no small part to the truly disproportionate sacrifices and accomplishments that Canada uh, had and made uh, during the two world wars and also during numerous uh, peacekeeping missions around the world. And, and, and I mean, f- sure, the story of war and peacekeeping, the story of conflict is always checkered, without a doubt. But, but, without a, but Canada, Canada was, was certainly, a, a for, we, we, people refer to this as punching above our weight. I, 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 maybe I'm a little tired of that analogy. But... Uh, uh, without a doubt, we, we were afforded a great deal of influence and respect on the world stage, far, far above sort of our stature as a, as a huge military power, despite huge military successes in the, in the world wars. And, you know, despite our small size and our small economy, uh, at any rate, um, you know, when I, when I see the case for war being made over and over again, and without a doubt, you know, things are being hyped, the, the, the threat of terrorism is being hyped, 
you know, I, I just think there's a there's a, a war that we that we're actually winning that we need to get out of, and that's the, the war against the natural world. Um, and we're we're driving the humans are driving the sixth major extinction event in the geologic record. Uh, um, and we're driving it at a pace that might never have been seen before. This might not just be one of the biggest extinction events, but it might be one of the fastest as well. And, and I mean, blindingly fast. You know, year, even years ago, many years ago, I was reading articles about biologists talking about the need to just preserve what remains of the world's global uh, biodiversity hotspots. And 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 I think I think you know, in, we we should, we need to consider something like environmental peacekeeping because around the world. Uh, there are, are countries that cannot keep up with the illegal deforestation, the illegal poaching, and the illegal fishing that is just going rampant. Like, let's, let's ignore for a moment the legal activities that are already over-consuming those resources. There, you know, there are, 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 are parks, uh, national nature reserves, where the, the rangers are not only outgunned, but maybe even outmanned by the poachers. Um, the trade in illegal pets alone, if you think that's a, a, an innocuous issue, it's a multi-billion dollar industry that funds violent crime all around the world. And, it, you know, in the, in the Amazon recently, members from a previously uncontacted tribe were flushed out of the woods because they were being shot by um, uh, hench people from uh, illegal logging activities. And I just find that to be an extraordinary thing if you think of it from their point of view to leave your ancestral home where I don't know how many, how many hundreds or thousands of years these people have lived there and discover that the world outside you is full of 7 billion other humans consuming it to death. And, and not only is your way of life over, but your, your world as you knew it is, is going to soon be obliterated. It's going to be logged. And it, we need to consider, we, I do seriously believe we need to consider some kind of engagement where we start, where we, we uh, uh, contribute to the efforts to stop illegal deforestation, uh, stop illegal fishing, uh, and stop illegal poaching. Uh, you, you know, there's, like I think I already said this, there are species that are being poached into extinction. Uh, and, 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 and even and, and on the, in the international, the illegal trade in, in exotic pets is also, you know, in its in its own way, consuming certain species into extinction. They're, they're, and the weird thing is that the the rarer these species get, the more money they command in this trade, in a perverse application of capitalism, which is supposed to make efficient use of resources as they become scarce. Uh, since our our notion of wealth is not constrained by the health of the real world, uh, as, you know, as people around the world. Uh, in, in certain areas, that, uh, I don't want to single out any particular culture in this, but um, and we're all in on this to some degree. In, in some, our activities are all contributing to this. But there are certainly certain areas where there's like markets for exotic pets and, and things like uh, you know tigers and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, so uh, so weirdly, as they become scarce, it becomes more uh, uh, lucrative to poach them <laughs> or or uh, capture them. And export them. It, uh, it, it's a huge trade. It, the, the profit margins in the illegal pet trade would make drug traffickers proud. They they would love to be uh, uh, making as much money as the as the pet traffickers. At any rate, um, you know, again, as I as I watch this weird um, sort of uh, um, militaristic attitude that's going on in politics right now, this uh, you know the Islamophobia. The hyping of the, the the domestic terror threat and and these this these sort of this this uh, 
And we've been down this road before with people making a case for war in Iraq. I'm not saying, not saying it's the wrong war. It might be the right war just being fought in the wrong way. But, uh, but it reminds me of, of, of uh, you know, how, we, how we, we could approach problems differently. And, uh, and, you know, with something like environmental peacekeeping, maybe you could think of this as we could save two birds with one stone. All right. Thanks so much, Kevin. I actually have an, <clears throat> I'm, I'm glad we uh, have a couple of extra minutes. I have a couple of thoughts about that. One of them was that <clears throat> I was actually having a conversation last night with somebody at CSI. And for your sort of deep green, crazy hippie thought for the week, um, tangential to that was the idea that I was talking to somebody about the sort of a basic property of uh, economics, which is that theoretically neoliberal economics uh, loves to say things like it maximizes utility. And one of the thoughts I had about that, and I, I realize it's an oversimplification, but what more could possibly infringe on the concept of maximizing utility than the concept of private property? Um, you're, you're by definition re reducing utility. Anyway, so the, re the reason where it's sort of that you know, the, those thoughts uh, intersect to a degree was the fact that, you know, if we... Wars are fought on the idea that this is mine and that is yours, and if you infringe on my stuff, I'm going to uh, defend myself. Um, but this requires sort of a function that, you know, this is mine over here and that's yours over there and you can do whatever you want as long as you don't bother us sort of an idea and completely ignores the entire concept that as you've, well, as we've all sort of beat over the head for going on eight years now, um, we are not in a position where we have the luxury of thinking of this is Canada and that is the U.S. and that is Russia. I mean, they are. Those are political boundaries that we divide up for the sake of running certain amounts of space. Um, but Canada's pollution doesn't stay in Canada. And the pollution that USA produces doesn't, you know, affects everybody else. And this entire concept of sort of divvying stuff up of, into areas of responsibility is not useful in many conversations, and yet it gets applied to all. Well, the, and nowhere is that more apparent to me than when, you know, we have this position here in Canada on global warming, again, where we won't come to the table until the major emitters sit down with us. That's, you know, that's kind of our, I don't know, haughty attitude about this. And But in the meantime, we want to sell them our bitumen. So, so I, I just don't understand our position there. Uh, you know what are we bitumen pushers? We won't. We're, we're like we're like the neighborhood drug dealer, and we won't sit down with our customers to discuss their their addiction problems until they give it up, until they break their habits. But we're the pusher. You know, in the meantime, we want to be the global superpower pushing bitumen, the global energy superpower. That's that's those are Stephen Harper's own words. Well, you just have to Google uh, history of Canadian uh, asbestos industry. Oh yeah, yeah, for uh, which, a direct corollary. Yeah, <laughs> and we should. Although the the um, the asbestos mining operations in Quebec were shut down not that long ago, within the last two or three years, and that really was one of Canada's dirty secrets. Banned here for its obvious carcinogenic uh, properties, but we would still happily export it to any developing nation that didn't have the same environmental or workplace protections, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, protections that we enjoy here. So we were making money off of something that we knew was too, that we judged as being too harmful to consume ourselves. And that's a, it is a great analogy for, for what we're doing. And again, how do we justify being bitumen pushers and then, you know, but simultaneously just being too haughty to sit down with the people who are, you know, we, who are our customers <laughs> until they wean themselves off that bitumen. <laughs>
Yeah. Uh, well, unfortunately, we're in the last couple of minutes here. Uh, Stefan, we, uh, uh, we've been uh, hard at work, of course, doing all the stuff on YouTube. We have a, a number of uh, stories that are relevant to this going on last week. But I'm looking forward this week to covering a number of items, including we have a number of updates on the Line 9 issue mm-hmm. uh, for those folks who are in... Uh, you know, anywhere in Canada, but uh, <laughs> primarily we, we have information about the, the Ontario leg of that. There was a really big story this week about a major train derailment and fire in uh, Saskatchewan that includes a number of toxic materials uh, and a bunch of other things. We also have the extended cut uh, of the interview with Mike. Uh, which is available. Mm-hmm. You can find all of that on our YouTube channel, and the best place to get uh, links to all that stuff is to go to greenmajority.ca. Uh, so, and uh, just re- regardless of the fact that I've also been uh, doing uh, another round of edits, uh, I think they're coming together tight. I still have a few more things I'm going to be doing to the main website, um, but uh, a lot of cool stuff that we've been putting up there, and a lot of things that you've been working on uh, as well are being shown up there. We we sliced up some of our previous interviews so that they're sort of cut into individual questions. We have a mountain, I would say, at this point, of content that does not get aired on this show. So if you enjoy this program, uh, please do go check out uh, what was the place that they could find that for, though? Uh, I believe it's greenmajority.ca Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. We'll have to double-check that. Yeah, we'll, yeah. Th- we'll get to it. Uh, there's a number of other cool things that we have going on. Of course, uh, next week we'll be looking forward to an interview um, with uh, uh, Nikki uh, Fotheringham, who is the uh, the blogger behind Green Moxie, which is a very popular uh, green living blog. She also has a book coming out. We'll be speaking to her. We also, later in the month, will be filming and then airing for radio uh, a roundtable on food, which we have two confirmed guests. I won't announce them just yet. Uh, but we have uh, a number of food-related issue uh, stories that are going to be coming up. Uh, and then we've also, but we're going to start doing uh, something special with some of the headline videos. Yeah. So the idea is basically we're going to have one of the videos. Uh, it was going to be called a premium headline. Premium headline. Yes. Which basically means what? Uh, basically, it means you put an extra five hours of work into it to get. It. <laughs> there you go. Uh, amazing. So there's there's tons of new stuff going up on the YouTube channel and tons of new stuff on the website. Uh, I definitely recommend checking that out. Uh, and then of course, uh, and and specifically to get some information on, there's some really big breaking stories that have been happening this week. So please do stay tuned for that. Uh, hey, you know, worst case scenario, even if you don't end up watching it, it makes us look good if we have mm-hmm. extra subscribers. You can go to YouTube, hit subscribe, and then just turn your notifications off. Uh-huh. Uh, but, it, you know, it helps us out. Uh, and it also means that, uh, that we see people are out there. Uh, final thing I want to say as well, aside from reminding people that coming up uh, on October the 24th, or at least the week of uh, the 28th to 26th, it will be the fall membership drive if you're here uh, in within the primary CIUT range. Uh, if not, I'm sure you can look forward to your local fundraising drive coming up somewhere there soon as well. Um, but also, uh, I've had quite a bit of feedback recently. And I, in fact, I bumped into somebody at an event who uh, started by saying, I'm sure you get this all the time, so I won't, uh, you know, go on about how much I enjoy your program. And I said, no, no, please do. Uh, <laughs> because actually, we don't actually hear from too many of our listeners. Mm. I have been bumping into people more and more often. And we know from the data at CIUT that there are tons and tons of people looking uh, listening to the show. Uh, but we don't hear from you as often as we would like to. So please do drop us a line. Again, best place to do that is greenmajority.ca. We'll, uh, that's all the time we have for this week. Everybody have a good green week, and we'll see you all soon.